Give your Bibles, go to Daniel 7, if you would, please. We're going to be wrapping up the chapter today. The Mission Church, we like just going through a verse or two at a time, spending our days just walking through books of the Bible, and our study through Daniel is no exception to that. Try to just make it simple to understand and explain things to you. And I've been eager to teach through the book of Daniel for a while now, and one of the reasons is because I know that the book of Daniel contains some teaching that we're seeing here in chapter 7 that relate to the end times, teaching that points to what will happen in Daniel's future and perhaps even in our future. I think that eschatology really matters. I think that what a Christian believes about the end times will have a major play in our lives. Daniel received a vision about something that's coming after his day. And in this vision, he saw four beasts come out of the sea. And the fourth beast was the most terrifying of all of them. And some specific details are given about this beast that concerns Daniel. But as the beasts come out of the sea and have dominion over the earth for a period of time, eventually God sits on his throne in judgment, and these beasts are judged for their wickedness on the earth. In Daniel's vision, he sees one like a son of man stand before the one on the throne, the Ancient of Days. And this son of man receives the kingdom that will be eternal in nature. It will be perfect and righteous and it will be just and it will last for forever. Daniel sees this vision and he gets concerned. He's anxious. He doesn't understand the details of the vision, what it means. And so he asks... An angel in the vision to answer him. What is the interpretation of these things? And I just want to quickly read for you the two-verse summary that the angel gives of Daniel's vision. In verses 17 and 18, you can see this with me. These four beasts, these four great beasts, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. I explained last week that the whole vision could be divided into those same two verses, into two scenes. One, a succession of beasts who is eventually standing before the judgment seat of God and judged, dominion stripped, and they're destroyed. In the second scene, Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God and receives commendation and authority and an everlasting kingdom. That's the summary of the vision. But I really want for you at the Mission Church to be familiar with the things passages like this are telling us about. I want you to be familiar enough with these kind of texts that you are blessed greatly by reading them, that you get great advantage from your time through chapters like Daniel chapter 7. And when I say these kind of texts, what I mean is those that relate to a person's end times view. A person's eschatology. Eschatology, that word just simply means study of the last things and refers to what a Christian believes will happen in the end. What events are coming ahead of us? What shall we see down the line in history? What should we expect? Eschatology really does matter. You might know if you've been a Christian for very long that there is a very weird attitude that has been floating around Christian circles for at least as long as I have been alive, that eschatology doesn't 
matter. That end times is not worth the investment of energy uh, in study. In fact, there, are, there seems to be a, a very minor, insignificant number, a, a class of Christians who are the nerds who study these kind of things, and they're kind of the outcasts, and they, they care to actually study this stuff, and everyone else is just saying, ah, just, just, it's not a big deal, stop worrying about this. I've heard Christians argue against studying eschatology on a number of grounds. I've heard people say, well, there are so many views. How can I keep them all straight? First off, no, that's not true. There are not that many views. There are three views, maybe four in some subcategories. That, that's, that's this many. That's not too many. You are smart enough to know the views of the end times. You are. This is not unattainable information for a believer. You, you, if you can learn the lyrics to your favorite song, you can learn the end time views that Christians have held and hold today regarding what will happen by the end of time. And it would be good for you to stretch yourself in this area, even if it is someplace that might make you uncomfortable. In fact, one of the reasons this feels like such an immense and enormous task to many believers is because currently in history, we've lost our familiarity with these texts. And so many Christians retreat out of it. There's just too many views to keep straight. I'm not going to have any play in trying to figure out where I land. Another argument that I hear from Christians sometimes on this front, well, Christians have been arguing about eschatology for centuries. So, what's, what's, what's your point? I mean, the simple fact that believers have been debating these things for centuries should prove to you these things matter. Because Christians have been debating them for centuries. Do you know the kind of things that we don't debate for centuries? Did Jesus have pets? Because it doesn't matter. Stuff like this actually does. It's in the Bible. It's written in our word. We should want to understand and grow in our knowledge of these kinds of things. I'm amazed at how often I meet someone today who has never met or spoken with another Christian who holds a different eschatological view. It's really kind of surprising considering how much of the Bible tells us about these kinds of things. Eschatology is an excellent category of doctrine for us to learn how to exercise our humility. That's a lot of things I don't know. I thought I knew, and now I read this verse, and it makes me think. It's an excellent place for us to exercise unity in spite of differences. This is a great place to practice that. And learning these views and discussing, even debating them, will make us stronger. The best fighters are those who grew up with a bunch of brothers who always used to beat up on them. Why? Because they're very familiar with battle. They're very familiar with the, the argument and the conflict. They don't run from their own blood, and it's good for Christians in an intellectual way, in a way that we think about these things and care about the Word, to become so familiar with these things that we don't run at the first sign of disagreement, but that we lean in and grow together. Lastly, and maybe the most common argument against studying eschatology I've heard in my days is, it doesn't really matter. It's not an essential. This was, this was me for years. This was me. You know, it doesn't seem like it's really that big of a deal. Like, is it really going to change that much? I was wrong. While it need not be a point of division or disunity between believers, it does matter. It actually does matter what you think about what the Bible says. I know that I am not at all alone today in becoming convinced that the prevailing Western Christian view on the end times was a major contributing factor in the downfall of the church that we are all presently experiencing. 
I know that's a weighty claim. I don't say that lightly. How a person understands what God says will happen in this age until Jesus returns will and should have a profound effect on what we do in our culture, how we pray, what we effort towards, what we teach our children, what we pass on to the next generation, and what we even offer in teaching to those we should be discipling in our lives. To illustrate that, did Jesus in his commission, hand us a shovel to dig a bomb shelter and wait for his return, or a sword to take the field of battle and victory before he returns. You see how that would lead us to two very different ways in which we approach life and culture and the world around us. Remember, when Jesus said to make disciples, do you, do you remember when he said that? He's, he commissioned his, great, his disciples uh, to make disciples and he told them to teach them to observe everything I've commanded you except for eschatology. Remember when he said that? Yeah, me neither. Everything, all the things that he taught. In fact, Paul gave an example to pastors everywhere when he taught the whole counsel of God's word. To not leave out the challenging parts and the ones that make us uncomfortable because we're just not certain. Even the mysteries of God. Even when authors of the Bible weren't sure what they were writing down, they still wrote it and delivered it. I don't even know what this is, but this is what God said. In fact, every time that we get to a passage, Old and New Testament, where an author writes down something that could relate to end times, they don't say, hey, don't worry about this part because you're not going to get it. It doesn't do that. In fact, did you know that there's only one book in the Bible that in its introduction explicitly says that Christians will be blessed when we read it out loud and hear it read out loud? You know what book that is? Revelation. The book that, at least in my lifetime and in my experience, many Christians have just avoided. Wow, this is just too, too much for me. It's the words of God. I once made these errors and my hope would be that as a church, we wouldn't fall for those errors, that we will acknowledge there are difficulties here. There's a variety of different ways to view a bunch of things, and it's going to take some work to try to figure out some stuff. And we're also going to exercise our humility muscles and our willingness to disagree and still get along. It's good for us. I pray that our church can be like that. Today I'm planning on getting through the text of Daniel 7. I want to get to the end. Verse 28 is the last verse. I think we're going to get there. And then answer a few questions. But I'm well aware that there's going to be much that could still be dealt with. And so uh, even up into my last minutes of preparation this morning, it became clear that I had to break, a, break the sermon into a couple uh, sermons to make, make the most sense of this uh, for everyone's benefit. So today we're going to get to the end of the text. And Lord willing, next week, my goal would be to come back and kind of do another big overarching summary of the big points of what's going down here to try to help you understand what's taking place in this text and how that relates to the end times more generally. So if you're with me and you want to follow along, go to Daniel 7. I'm going to read verses 19 through 28, pray, and then go back and unpack a verse or few at a time uh, before answering a couple of questions at the end. Let's read and then pray. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions 
As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominions shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, please enlighten the eyes of our heart. Help us to see this text clearly. Give us humility as we step before it. Lord, we come before your text here in Daniel 7 with great gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for supplying this vision to Daniel. Thank you for preserving it throughout the ages, though many tried to snuff out your word and to keep it from the hands of believers. Thank you that every one of us today can be reading this for ourselves on a phone or online some way or uh, in our paper Bibles printed in set before us how grateful we are, Lord, that we get this great blessing. I pray that we would not squander it. Help us to be thoughtful about the things that we read today. Help us to be challenged by it. But mostly, Lord, help this learning lead us to worship you more, love you more completely, care in a greater and more complete way for our neighbor. For your glory and for our joy, we ask for help as we read this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Let's go back through, again, starting in verse 19 and 20. Read this with me. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. Now we've covered this before. Because Daniel is now revisiting, he's rehashing his vision a second time. We've already heard the vision said the first time. So uh, just for the sake of time, we're not going to go back through every little detail again. We did that a bit more in weeks past. You can go back and uh, listen to those sermons if you want some clarity after this. But Daniel was given an interpretation by an angel standing next to him. And even after that two-sentence interpretation was given, he was still uncertain about a part of the vision that the angel did not explain. And that is simply that about the beast, the fourth beast. Now, quick note, just for clarity, the text doesn't say exactly whom Daniel is talking with at this time. We don't know. We don't know who he's talking with. It doesn't say. It is simply referred to as one of those who stood there. So it must be one of the heavenly creatures from the vision. I'll today just be referring to this unnamed and unidentified messenger as an angel. I don't think that's a stretch, but if you're wondering where it is in the text, it's not. That's an assumption. While he doesn't seem to be overly curious about the first three beasts, Daniel's curiosity 
or perhaps better said, his concern is about the fourth beast of his vision. So here he restates the vision in order to inquire about the beast. Again, it's the second time he'll tell about this vision in his own words. So most of these features we've already seen explained the first time around. But he does provide a few minor additional details that had not been mentioned previously. He says that the beast was exceedingly terrifying. He says that it had bronze claws and that the little horn seemed greater than its companions. You'll note that's nothing too dramatic here in its difference, but these things weren't explicitly stated earlier, at least not with the same language. But the most notable difference this second time around is what he says about the little horn in the next verse. Verses 21 and 22. Go ahead and follow this with me. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So this part about the war against the saints was not previously mentioned. And no explanation is given in the text, either here or elsewhere, as to why this was previously omitted. Perhaps... To Daniel, this war against the saints he mentions here relates to the little horn speaking great things that leads to his judgment earlier in the vision. He doesn't seem to have any problem with it. He just repeats this as though, well, yeah, by that part, as though he just left it out without realizing. And the horn appears to be winning the war. Note that. The horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It wasn't as though the horn was trying to attack and it couldn't quite land the blow. It seems as though it is quite effective in its efforts, prevailing over them. But it's only prevailing over them for a limited time until something happens. And what is the until in verse 22? Until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So the the saints are being attacked. They're being prevailed against by this fourth beast by this little horn specifically from that fourth beast and this happens until the ancient of days comes and that's the part of the vision that was referenced in verses 9 through 11 so i'm just going to read that part again to see what this quick little one line is reminding us of he says in chapter 7 verse 9 through 11 as i looked thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So what is the consequence For this terrifying beast, he's judged. God pours his wrath upon him, and he is burned with fire. That's the kind of judgment that we see. And Daniel makes it clear in the retelling that the beast is judged on behalf of the saints of the Most High. See that there? That's why this happens. That that is a, a causal term. It's given for, it is granted for the saints of the Most High. They had been prevailed against, war had come upon them, and the Lord comes to the rescue. This reminds me of Romans chapter 12, 
This popped right to mind as I was reading through and studying this one because the promise of God's coming and relief and then judgment on our enemies is all over the Bible. It popped in my mind about Romans 12. It says this in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So why is it that Christians ought not be the ones to seek vengeance and to, to avenge and to, 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 to bring justice on everyone else? Because God will do it. God will do it. It is not as though we say, you know what, there's just no justice. Just let all bad things happen. No. When we let something go, God will, in His due time, execute judgment for the sake of His saints. We never have to worry that one wicked deed will go undealt with in one way or another. All will be dealt with in the end. And what happens next? After the ancient days comes, after judgment is given, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This, of course, is again a a repeating of the interpretation given by the angel. When the angel said, in two sentences, what that vision represented, he said that it was a time when the saints of the Most High received the kingdom. They possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's what Daniel repeats. Now, remember, while this is the second time that Daniel tells about his vision. And there are a few notable differences, as I just mentioned. The reason he's even rehashing this is to ask the angel about the fourth beast. That's why he's saying it. He wants to know about the fourth beast. He was not satisfied in those two sentences about the fourth beast. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just skipped right over something kind of important there, angel. What about that fourth beast? Because it sounded kind of important. And here's the angel's answer. Follow me, if you will, into verse 23. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. We've already covered this part, I think in the last two weeks we've talked about this a bit. But the fourth beast here is a fourth kingdom on earth. Not a singular earthly king, nor is it a group of individual people who are collectively responsible for the havoc that it wreaks. It is the personification of an entire kingdom. That's why that entire kingdom will be judged in some way. The case that I tried to make a couple of weeks ago was that each of the beasts in this vision are under the influence of demonic spiritual forces that are at work behind the scenes of history through the earthly kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's why they're described as an animal in some kind of form, as something personified, because there were spiritual forces at work behind all the kings of Babylon and the kings of Persia and the kings of Greece and the kings of Rome. That's the idea. There are demonic forces at play. Now the angel tells us about the horns in verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So again, we said this in weeks past, but in case there were any question about what these horns represent, they represent ten kings. And the little horn that arises is an eleventh king who kills three of the others. That's what's going on here. So again, in this vision, he saw stuff, but what he saw represented something else. This is one of those things that should be very obvious for us, but it's good just to pause and be reminded by sometimes. Those horns weren't horns. 
They were dudes. They were kings. They were rulers. They were actual people who will be born on earth, have names, ruled in some capacity. And one, an eleventh, will kill three others. So this is something that's happened in this vision that he foretells. But the little horn will harm far more than just three kings because the verse continues. Look at verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Here the angel gives us a bit more information concerning this king, that little horn, that significant one. He's called different than all the rest. Just like the fourth beast was called different from the rest. That language being used here in Daniel is meaning it's more significant. There's something special. There's something special about that fourth beast over and above the other three. There's something special about this last king over and, among the other, over and above the other ten. So the angel gives us some info to help us understand what to expect with this final king, this little horn. Let me show you a few of those things. You see them right here in the text. First, he shall speak words against the Most High. Now, it's already said that he had blasphemy. He spoke great words. Now it's made clear that that kind of words he was speaking were against the Most High. It was blasphemy against God. You and I should not be at all surprised to hear that a ruler would blaspheme God. In fact, repeatedly in the book of Daniel, we've already seen rulers blaspheme God with their lips multiple times referring to themselves as gods, referring to themselves as worthy of worship, saying that they would worship the gods of stone and the gods of wood more so than the one true, holy, righteous creator God of the universe. This has happened on repeat. In fact, each of these kings are named after their own false gods and consider themselves divine on earth. And yet, we see it explained even more explicitly about this final king. He will be charged with blasphemy. You and I need to be reminded all unjust and tyrannical rule of kings is at root demonic. No earthly ruler is ambivalent towards God. He will either be a friend of God in Christ or an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. And the only disparity that we will find in the amount of wickedness come to bear from earthly kings who are enemies of God is due to God's common grace, not allowing some to fall full-blown into their wickedness that would impact the world around them. So he will speak words against the Most High. Second, he will wear out the saints of the Most High. This is that war that Daniel talked about back in verse 21. Uh, The war against the saints where he prevailed over them. That's that same idea, prevailing over them, wearing out the saints of the Most High. This is the only place in the Old Testament that that term is used, wear out, like it like that. This is, of course, Aramaic, but even the Greek version of this is actually unique. However, it just means oppress. That's what it means. He shall oppress the saints of the Most High. And he shall be quite effective in doing so. That's the kind of tribulation or trial or suffering that comes upon the saints in the days of this final king. The king will have a particular animus towards believers. Now, I've heard the charge leveled against Christians all my life that whenever a king rises to power in a certain tyrannical or wicked way in the world, 
Christians are quick to decry persecution. Ah, they're going against Christians. And I've heard the charge against us to be, you're paranoid Christians. Why do you think everyone's out to battle you? Because everyone's out to battle us. That, that's why. And we don't have to say that with like a weepy, oh, we're, we're victims in the world. No, no, no. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. In all of Babylon, how many men were thrown into the fiery furnace for not worshiping Nebuchadnezzar? Only God's people. That's it. Only those three. This is the way that it always works out. There are no conscientious objectors. This really is, in history, a battle between good and evil. Not equal on both sides, to be sure, but it is a battle against God and his people, and that is certain. This king has a particular animus towards believers. He shall think to change the times and the law. He shall think to change the times and the law. What does that mean? Change the times and the law. The whole Bible contrasts the righteousness of God with the injustices of men. Always doing this. God is not a man like us because we will act this way, he will act this way. All of the kings on earth will try and fail where God alone tries and succeeds. Man continually thinks that he can come up with more just laws than God, but anything that does not conform to God and to his word is sin. And so the ruler who would not appeal to what God says is right or wrong is a fool, and he operates as an enemy of God. Think to change the times and the law. What does he do? He tries to do what he's not authorized to do, what no king is authorized to do. He tries to set new standards of what is good and what is evil. Now, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, because I've said this from up here so many times, but you've got to know this as believers. No earthly ruler in the history of humanity ever has or ever will be authorized to determine what is good and what is evil. No king, no governor, no emperor, no judge, no sheriff, no senator, no congress, no constitution, no consensus of all the peoples of a particular nation. God gets to determine what is right. God gets to determine what is wrong. And it is the responsibility of all civil rulers to honor what he has already established. That's the way it's to work. And this particular king will not only blaspheme, not only go after the saints, but he will try to change the times and the law. He will say that killing Christians is good and letting Christians live is bad. That kind of upending of what is right and what is wrong. That's the kind of thing we will see. Change the times and the law. Do we not see this around us right now? And we have perfect examples of this everywhere we look. You remember way back in ancient days, 2019 and before, when, when humanity believed that men were men and women were women? What, what are we doing? Those ignorant ancient peoples back then were so confused, and today we try to change the times and the law. This will happen in some measure all throughout this age. Every time that wicked rulers flex their unrighteous muscles in humanity, we see this kind of thing happen, where they make laws and try to change the times in such a way that they declare what is right, they declare what is wrong. But the Bible says, woe to those who trade evil for good and good for evil. Because that's what kings have been doing all along. This one this king, that will be particularly true. 
and the saints shall be given into his hand. They shall be given into his hand. He will appear to be victorious over God's people. He'll be quite effective at what he aims to do. He's going to make war on the saints, and it's going to look good because he's, uh, he's had this granting of authority. In some way, the saints in his day will be given into his hand. It's not just because he is powerful. Is it because God is working something great in this time? These saints ought not think that they will be spared from his oppression. It is in God's will that they be persecuted during this time, although it will be limited. Brothers and sisters, you need to know, I hope you do, we have always been promised trial and tribulation and suffering from the world around us. Always. Anyone who seeks to make the world a friend becomes an enemy of God. There's a reason for that. Because the world is an enemy of God. We cannot try to appease and line up with and make friends and peace with the world and think that that will not have consequences in our hearts relationship with us and God. We will become enemies if we try to please the world. You can't please the world and God. You have to pick which one. And so, the saints will be persecuted during this time. So for the believer who goes, ah, we got this, no worries. God will never let anything bad happen to me. Uh, The saints have been given into his hand. Martyrdom is real. And it will continue and it will exist until the end. But that time will be limited. Limited to what? For a time, times, and half a time. Interesting phrase. If you're familiar with any end times passages, this is probably not a surprising phrase for you to see. It is used several other times in the Bible. But it is only ever used in apocalyptic literature. That means highly symbolic literature referring to future events. That's the only way it's ever used. So Peter's never saying, hey, I'll be, don't worry, I'll get there in time, times, and half a time. No, it's always talking about a very figurative kind of period of time. And here's what it means as clearly as I can just say it to you right now, just simply by the text. Look at what it says. It refers to an unidentified period of time followed by an even longer unidentified period of time. And third, followed by an unidentified period of time cut short. Okay? That's officially what it's saying. So the phrase can either be very symbolic and figurative, meaning after a while, God will intervene in the trajectory of human history. Or it can be viewed as literal, as in three and a half years. For the time we sometimes see in the apocalyptic literature, 42 months, 1260 days. A time, times and half a time. A time being a year, times being two more years, and half of a time being half a year. Summarized three and a half years. And so people have seen that number many times as they're trying to view what happens in the end. Nevertheless, the days of his reign will be cut short. God will step into history to put an end to this king's otherwise unstoppable rule. He continues in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. This again summarizes what Daniel saw in verses 9 through 12, actually all the way through to 12. While the beast appears to win for a while, his judgment is fixed, and he will be consumed and destroyed to the end. And I've made the note a few other weeks already now at this point, what we see about this beast 
is when his dominion is finally and ultimately stripped away, that happens concurrently with the ending of his life. This beast, the fourth, is different than the other three. His, he does not have dominion removed, and then he survives for thousands of years, and then, and then he dies. When that ultimately and finally happens, it will happen at a single point, at a single moment. His dominion taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So once again, we see that after the beast is destroyed, there will be a time of peace where the saints receive the kingdom. I know last week I spent a decent amount of time showing how while the vision showed the Son of Man received the kingdom, both the interpretation, Daniel's second retelling, and the additional interpretation all say that it's the saints who receive and possess the kingdom. We'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing, also, but we spent some time on there last week. This shall be a global and absolute rule. And at this point, at the point that the kingdom is passed to the saints, all the people left on earth will serve and obey God. All dominions shall serve and obey Him. All of them. All the dominions that once were under the rule, under the authority of these beasts, now are under the rule and the authority of King Jesus and His people. And you'll notice it's not an ongoing battle and conflict and war. It's so hard. You know, family matters. It's always difficult to make things. No, 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 no. They shall serve and obey Him. That's what's true about these dominions from this point forward. They will no longer be at war with God. They will now be in submission to the Most High. And Daniel summarizes this in verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So it might not be surprising that Daniel's pretty concerned about this. Because this wasn't just him reading words on a page, which should be significant, but it was actually him experiencing this and having an angel explain the details of this to him. And so his color changed. He had great anxieties in his heart about it. And yet he recorded this for us anyhow. I want to give a quick one-paragraph summary of what the vision and the interpretation said. I'm going to try to not add in this little paragraph uh, my assumptions or my interpretation of this, but just what is said based upon what he sees here. Daniel was told that there would be three kingdoms on earth followed by a fourth, more terrible kingdom. It would be comprised of multiple kings and have dominion over the earth for an unspecified yet fixed period of time. Eventually, one king will arise who will kill three others and he will make war on the saints. And those saints will fall victim to that king for a time. But God will judge that king and kingdom and all the wicked kings and kingdoms who had come before it and throw them into the lake of fire. And in the end, an eternal kingdom will be given to God's people that they may dwell in peace forever. That's the summary of what Daniel saw in the vision and received in the interpretation. Now this is not the only vision in the Bible that describes a beast like this. I made a reference last week to yet another beast 
that is described in Revelation chapter 13 through 17. You'll see it again all the way through chapter 19 and into chapter 20. This is John's revelation. He has a vision that he records and puts as the last book of our Bible. If you were to turn there, you'd find at the very end. I want to show you something from, from Revelation chapter 13 because I think it gives us some helpful clarity on questions we might have about this particular beast. And the fact that this is recorded another time is especially helpful because these two visions fill in the gaps for one another, giving us a clearer view of the beast. So first you should know that in Revelation chapter 12, John sees a vision of a dragon in the heavens who he specifically identifies as Satan himself, the great deceiver, the devil, that ancient serpent. This dragon battles against God's angels in the heavenly realm, but he loses the battle and is cast down to earth to remain for a limited period of time. In great wrath, the dragon sets his sights on the saints of God, and he waits on the shore of a sea. And that's the conclusion of chapter 12 of Revelation. I want to read for you verbatim now the beginning of chapter 13 and then some other verses that show the continuity between the Daniel vision and the Revelation one. Listen along to what John writes in Scripture regarding this beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. That text continues. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17 will continue. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. The similarities here are unmistakable. And that is why commentators and Bible scholars almost universally agree that the fourth beast of Daniel 7 and the first beasts in Revelation 13 through 17 are one and the same. John here is given further details than Daniel for an obvious reason. Not because these are different beasts, but because Daniel is looking forward to an event that takes place centuries after his day from his vantage point. While John is actually living during the time that this beast has already established its power. And so it makes great sense that John will be given further details to identify this beast with what he is experiencing right then. This beast is an earthly kingdom that is directly under the influence of Satan himself, and it sets its sights against God's people until the time where he can prevail against them. 
Now this leaves us with some questions. Perhaps first is the question of when. When should we expect this to take place? And if you're thinking eschatology stuff, that's probably what's coming to mind. When I say when, I don't mean here's the date, pull out your calendars. I mean, what are the order of events that ought to be expected? And where do we line up in the order of these events? When does this take place? Because for Daniel, it was in the future, to be sure. No one's, no one's in doubt here. That's all talking about stuff that happens after Daniel's day. He's looking down the corridors of history and says, someday this stuff's going to happen. But how about in relation to us? Where would our year, our era, line up in this timeline? Now, I suspect that you would not be surprised to hear that there are a few different views on this. And while there certainly are more than just two end-time views, I said before, you could summarize really into four, at least regarding this fourth beast of Daniel, the majority of views can be divided into two camps. The majority of views can be divided into two camps. Those who think that most of the events in Daniel's vision are in the past, they've already taken place. And those who think that most of the events in Daniel's vision are still in our future, they've not yet taken place. You'll notice I said most, because the significant majority of scholars across the whole spectrum in any of these camps agree that at least some of what's described here is past and some is future. Everyone agrees at parts. The question is, how about most of it? I think, I think that the events described in this chapter are mostly future. I think that the events in this chapter being described are mostly future, not mostly past. I think that most of this will happen someday ahead of us. As I said before, there are a variety of orthodox end times views in the Christian church. And as I've studied through Daniel with these views in mind, I think that one's understanding of the book of Daniel need not be necessarily determinative of one's end times view. In other words, whether or not you read this particular passage, for example, as mostly past or mostly future, that will not necessarily determine how you view the rest of the end time passages of the Bible. You can hold to a mostly future view here, a futurist view, while holding to a mostly past or preterist view of many other end times passages. I think that you can do that and vice versa. So it doesn't mean here that all the views fit equally nicely into the text of Daniel, but that if you are looking to Daniel to once and for all settle all of your eschatology issues, you're probably going to have to keep looking in other places. I want to summarize for you my view. You shouldn't care, my view is, determining what you think is true. But I think that this is the clearest way to understand both the Daniel text, the Revelation text, places like Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, places like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, the chief eschatology passages of the Bible. I think that this is the best summary of those things as I look at Daniel 7 with those things in mind. I want to summarize what the view is here for you. And next week... I hope to unpack it and explain this a bit more uh, for your benefit. I think that the three beasts are past, as we already said. Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And the fourth beast came to power in the days of ancient Rome. But he has not yet been fully destroyed. And it was after this fourth beast had come to power that Jesus was born into this earth. 
I made that case a couple weeks ago. I think that while that fourth beast was in power, that's when the Son of Man was born on earth. That's when Jesus' life and ministry was lived out. He lived a perfect life. He taught, corrected, and admonished his people, called them to repentance, but they rejected him. He was sent to a cross to die, and while that appeared to be an enormous loss for heaven, it appeared to be a victory for that fourth beast, it was all a part of the plan. In fact, at the cross, the Bible even tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in Jesus. At that point, a crushing blow was dealt against Satan. Jesus said that at the cross, Satan, the ruler of this world, has been cast out. But his end has not yet come. His power has been greatly limited today, and while he no longer has the same authority he once had over the world before Jesus' ministry, he is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And he is seeking a way to make war upon the saints. When Jesus rose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him, and now in this age he is building his church, and he will succeed in everything he promised he would accomplish. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' endeavor to build his church. But even while Christ builds his church today, as the wheat has been planted and growing, the tares, the weeds, will likewise grow. The very same satanic power that was behind ancient Rome is still at work in our world today because that final beast has not yet been slain. But in the end, all the dominion that was temporarily taken from the beast at the cross will one day be restored to him for a limited time at the end of this age for a final showdown. And Jesus will slay him at that final battle. And it will not be... A battle of equals, Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. And Satan will stand before the throne of God and receive judgment for all of his wicked deeds and be cast into the lake of fire. And after that final judgment, all of God's people will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth for forever. That's what I think Daniel 7 is telling us. Again, Lord willing, we will take another week to explain what I just summarized there quite briefly. I want to highlight what the text highlights for us. So before we conclude today, I want you to remember something. Remember why this text was written. This wasn't just here to satisfy all of our curiosities about end times. It's it's easy to rush off to that. That's not why this was here. The angel gave a two-sentence, two-liner interpretation for why the vision was given. Remember? It was to distinguish between the temporary and horrific nature of the earthly kingdoms and the eternal and glorious nature of Christ's eternal kingdom. That's why it's here. The permanence of the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom exceeds the wickedness of Satan's kingdom. No matter how bad things of this world seem to be in any age and in any place, we are to be encouraged by this, that Christ's eternal kingdom is preserved for those who believe. And it is greater in justice than this earth is in injustice. And it will endure longer in glory than this age does in horror. And if you want to partake in that eternal and pure kingdom, there is only one hope for you. To acknowledge that you are a sinner before an all-holy God. That you are deserving of His just wrath and penalty. That you deserve to go right where those beasts and that dragon will go. To the lake of fire 
separation from God and judgment for all eternity because of our sinfulness. But God in his great goodness and his mercy demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his perfect son into this earth to live a perfect life and go to the cross, triumphing over Satan and his works and effects, establishing his kingdom on earth to grow it. And the way that you and I enter into that kingdom is like a child to have faith in Jesus Christ alone. You want to be a believer? You want that kingdom? Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that before today, do that now. Talk to somebody before you leave today. Don't walk out of this church building before spending time in the Word, in prayer with somebody, and doing some time with Jesus, King of the universe, over the fact that you don't deserve heaven, and yet He offers it to you freely. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get to experience that eternity in heaven and perfection forever and ever and ever. This morning, we're going to have communion together in just a moment. And this communion meal acknowledges that we unworthy people are forgiven of our sins and able to stand in peace before God because of Jesus' death, Him paying the penalty for our sins, His broken body and His shed blood, what the bread and the cup represent to us here. If you are a believer, if you have turned to Jesus in saving faith, no matter what church you go to, you're welcome to partake with us today as a child of God. If you're not a believer today and you're still trying to figure all this out, just let us enjoy this meal without you. If you cannot, what, we, what the Bible would call, discern the body, understand what's going on when you take this communion, just, just let, let, it, let this moment pass and talk to somebody after about how you can join us, unworthy ones, in Christ's worthiness and partake of communion with us. Let's pray. Father, we love and are so grateful for what you've offered to us in your word. Help us to always be submissive, humble to what it teaches. We trust that you have a plan. And even if we get the details wrong and the order wrong and where we line up in in the timeline of history, Father, we know you have worked all things out for your glory and for our joy. Help us to trust in you like faithful saints throughout history have. We want to be counted amongst those who have looked towards Jesus' coming knowing that you're going to do exactly what you commanded. Father, I ask that as we have communion this morning that it would be a a peaceful and a wonderful meal for us, that we'd be able to partake of these things remembering what Jesus did, that we would celebrate his worthiness and our unworthiness, the sin that put him on the cross, and the forgiveness and the peace that we have now in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.